Chapter 18 God's Love Commended to Us But God commendeth His love toward us in that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8 What is meant here by commend? It means to recommend, to set forth in a clear and strong light. Toward whom is this love exercised? It is exercised toward us, toward all beings of our lost human race. God manifests this love to each one of us. Is it not written, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life? John 3.16 How does he commend this love? He does so by giving His Son to die for us, His well-beloved Son. It is written that Jesus gave Himself a ransom for all, 1 Timothy 2.6, and that He tasted death for every man, Hebrews 2.9. We are not to suppose that He died for the sum total of mankind in such a sense that his death is not truly for each one in particular. It is a great mistake into which some fall to suppose that Christ died for the human race in general, and not for each one in particular. By this mistake, the gospel is likely to lose much of its practical power on our hearts. We need to understand it as Paul did who said of Jesus Christ, He loved me and gave Himself for me. Galatians 2.20 We need to make this personal application of Christ's death. Undoubtedly, this was the great secret of Paul's holy life and of his great power in preaching the gospel. We, too, are to regard Jesus as having loved us personally and individually. Let us consider how much effort God has taken to make us feel that He cares for us personally. It is this way in His providence and also in His gospel. He would gladly make us single ourselves out from the crowd and feel that His loving eye and heart are upon us individually. For what purpose does He commend His love to us? Is it a desire to make a public display? <laughs> no, for certainly there can be no affection in this. God is infinitely above all pretense. He must from His very nature act honestly. Of course, He must have some good reason for this manifestation of His love. No doubt he seeks to prove to us the reality of his love. Feeling the most perfect love toward our lost race, he thought it best to reveal this love and make it obvious both to us and to all his creatures. And what could display his love if this gift of his Son does not? Oh, 
How gloriously is love revealed in this great sacrifice! How this makes divine love stand out prominently before the universe! What else could he have done that would prove his love so powerfully? God demonstrated that his love is unselfish, for Jesus did not die for us as friends, but as enemies. It was while we were still enemies that he died for us. On this point, Paul suggests that scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die, Romans 5, 7. But the human race was as far as possible from being good. Indeed, they were not even righteous, but were utterly wicked. One might be willing to die for a very dear friend. There have been soldiers who, to save the life of a beloved officer, have taken in their own chest the spear of death. But for one who is merely just and not so much as good, this sacrifice could scarcely be made. How much less for an enemy! Herein we may see how greatly God commendeth his love to us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8 Notice still further that this love of God to us cannot be the love of esteem or complacency, because there is in us no basis for such a love. It can be no other than the love of unselfish kindness. This love had been called in question. Satan had questioned it in Eden. He boldly insinuated it when he asked, Hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree in the garden? Genesis 3.1 Why would he want to keep you from such a pleasure? The old serpent tried to cast suspicion on the goodness of God. Therefore, there was even more reason why God would vindicate his love. He would also commend the great strength of his love. We would think that we gave evidence of strong love if we were to give our friend a great amount of money. But what is any amount of money compared with giving up a dear son to die? Oh, certainly it is surpassing love beyond measure wonderful, that Jesus would not only labor and suffer, but that he would really die. Was ever love like this? God also wanted to reveal the moral character of his love for mankind, and especially its justice. He could not show favors to the guilty until his government was made secure and that his law was properly honored. Without this sacrifice, he knew it could not be safe to pardon. God must maintain the honor of his throne. He must show that he could never brush aside sin. He felt the solemn necessity of giving a public rebuke of sin before the universe. This rebuke was even more expressive because Jesus himself was sinless. Of course, 
It must be seen that in his death, God was not disapproving of his sin, but of the sin of those whose sins he bore, and in whose place he stood. This shows God's abhorrence of sin since Jesus stood as our representative. While he stood in this position, God could not spare him, but laid on him the chastisement of our iniquities. Isaiah 53.5 Oh, what a rebuke of sin that was! How revealingly did it show that God abhorred sin, yet loved the sinner! These were among the great objects in view. To create in our souls the twofold conviction of His love for us and of our sin against Him. He wanted those convictions to be strong and abiding, so He set forth Jesus crucified before our eyes, a far more expressive thing than any mere words. No saying that He loved us could compare with the strength and impressiveness of this manifestation. In no other way could He make it seem so much a reality, so touching, and so overpowering. By this He commends it to our regard. He invites us to look at it. He tells us that angels desire to look into it, 1 Peter 1.12. He wants us to consider this great fact and examine all its significance until it comes powerfully upon our souls with its power to save. He delivers it to us to be reciprocated, as if He would inspire us to love Him who has so loved us. Of course, He wants us to understand this love and appreciate it, so that we may repay it with responsive love in return. It is an example for us that we can love our enemies and, much more, our brethren. Oh, when this love has taken its effect on our hearts, how deeply we feel that we cannot hate anyone for whom Christ died. Then, instead of selfishly pushing our neighbor aside and grabbing the good to which his claim is just as great as ours, we love him with a love so deep and so pure that it cannot be in our heart to do him wrong. It was therefore a part of the divine purpose to show us what true love is. Someone said in prayer, We thank you, Father, that you have given us your Son to teach us how to love. Yes, God wants us to know that He Himself is love, and therefore, if we want to be His children, we must love Him and love one another. He desires to reveal His love so as to draw us into union with Himself and make us like Him. Do you not believe that a thorough consideration of God's love, as manifested in Christ, actually teaches us what love is and serves to draw our souls into such love? The question is often asked, how should I love? The answer is given in this example. Herein is love, 1 John 
look at it, and savor its spirit. Man is inclined to love himself first and foremost, but there is a completely different kind of love from that. This love commends itself in that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How powerfully this rebukes our selfishness! How much we need this lesson to overcome our small-minded selfishness and shame our unbelief! How strange it is that people do not realize the love of God. The wife of a minister who had herself labored in many revivals said to me, Until a few days ago, I never knew that God is love. What do you mean? I asked. I mean that I never understood it in all its significance before. Oh, I assure you that it is a great and blessed truth, and it is a great thing to see it as it is. When it becomes a reality to the soul and you come under its powerful tenderness, then you will find the gospel to indeed be the power of God unto salvation. Paul prayed for his Ephesian converts that they might be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of God that passeth knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Ephesians 3. 18 and 19. By commending his love to us in this way, God wanted to subdue our oppressive fear. Someone said, When I was young, I was sensible of fearing God, but I knew I did not love him. The instruction I received led me to fear, but not to love. As long as we think of God only as one to be feared and not to be loved, there will be a prejudice against him, as more an enemy than a friend. Every sinner knows that he deserves to be hated by God. He plainly sees that God must have good reason to be displeased with him. The selfish sinner judges God from himself. Knowing how he should feel towards someone who has wronged him, he unconsciously infers that God must feel the same way toward every sinner. When he tries to pray, his heart won't. It is nothing but terror. He feels no attraction toward God, no real love. The childlike spirit comes before God, weeping indeed but loving and trusting. God would gladly put away the state of feeling that only fears Him, and He desires to make us know that He loves us still. We must not regard Him as being entirely such as ourselves. He would want to take away what deceives us and make us realize that although He has spoken against us, yet he does earnestly remember us still. Jeremiah 31.20 He wants us to understand his dealings fairly and without preconceptions. 
He sees how, when he frustrates men's plans, they are intent on misunderstanding him. They will think that he is unconcerned about their well-being, and they are blind to the precious truth that he shapes all his ways toward them in love and kindness. He would lead us to judge that if God spared not his own Son, but gave him up freely for us all, then he will much more give us all other things most freely. Romans 8.32 God wants to lead us to serve him in love, not in bondage. He wants to draw us forth into the liberty of the sons of God. He loves to see the obedience of the heart. He desires to inspire love in us that is enough to make all our service to Him willing and cheerful and full of joy. If you want to make others love you, you must give them your love. Show your servants the love of your heart, and you will break their bondage and make their service one of love. In this way, God commends His love toward us in order to win our hearts to himself, thus getting us ready and preparing us to dwell forever in his eternal home. His ultimate aim is to save us from our sins, so that he may fill us forever with his own joy and peace. Remarks 1. We see that saving faith must be the heart's belief of this great fact that God so loved us. Saving faith receives the death of Christ as an expression of God's love to us. No other kind of faith, no faith in anything else, wins our hearts to love God. Saving faith saves us from our bondage and our prejudice against Him. It is this that makes it saving. Any faith that leaves out this great truth will fail to save us. If any element of faith is vital, it is this. Let anyone doubt this fact of God's love in Christ, and I would not give much for all his religion. It is worthless. 2. The Old Testament system is full of this idea. All those bloody sacrifices are filled with it. When the priest, in behalf of all the people, came forward and laid his hand on the head of the innocent victim and then confessed his sins and the sins of all, and then when this animal was slain and its blood was poured out before the Lord and he gave indications that he accepted the offering, it was a solemn manifestation that God substituted the death of an innocent lamb for the sufferings due to the sinner. Throughout that ancient system, we find the same idea, showing how God wants people to see His love in the gift of His own dear Son. 3. One great reason why people find it so difficult to repent and to submit to God is that they do not receive this great fact. They do not accept it in simple faith. If they were to accept it and let it come home to their hearts, it would carry with it a power to subdue the heart 
to submission and to love. 4. One reason why young men are so afraid that they will be called into the ministry is their lack of confidence in this love. Oh, if they saw and believed this great love, certainly they would not let 800 million people go down to hell in ignorance of this gospel. Oh, how it would agonize their hearts that so many would go to their graves and to an eternal hell without ever knowing the love of Jesus to their perishing souls. Yet, here is a young man for whom Christ has died who cannot bear to go and tell them that they have a Savior. What do you think of his compassion? How much is his heart like Christ's heart? Do you wonder that Paul could not hold his peace, but felt that he must go to the ends of the earth and preach the name of Jesus where it had never been known before? How deeply he felt that he must let the world know these glad tidings of great joy. How amazing that young men now can let the gospel die unknown and not go forth to bless the lost. Have they never tasted its blessedness? Have they never known its power? Do you seriously intend to conceal it so that it may never bless your dying brethren? 5. This manner of commending God's love is the strongest and most expressive that he could use. In no other way possible could he so powerfully demonstrate his great love to our human race. Therefore, if this fails to overcome men's enmity, prejudice, and unbelief, what can avail? What methods can he use if this proves unsuccessful? The Bible demands, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation. Hebrews 2.3 It may well make this appeal, for if this fails to win us, what can succeed? 6. If we had been his friends, there would have been no need for him to die for us. It was only because we were still sinners that he died for us. How great, then, are the claims of this love on our hearts! 7. Sinners often think that if they were pious and good, the Lord might love them. So they try to win His love by doing some good things. They try in every way to make God love them, especially by mending their manners rather than their hearts. Sadly, they seem not to know that the very fact of their being sunk so low in sin is moving God's heart to its very foundations. A sinless angel enjoys God's complacency, but not his compassion. He is not an object of mercy, and there is no call for it. The same is true of a good child. He receives the complacency of his parents, but not their compassion.
But suppose this child becomes wicked. Then his parents mourn over his fall, and their compassion is moved. They look on him with compassion and concern as they see him going down to the depths of iniquity, crime, and degradation. As he sinks lower and lower in the filth and abominations of sin, they mourn over him more and more. As they see how changed he is, they stand in tears, saying, This is our son, our own once-honored son, but he is fallen now. Our hearts are moved for him, and there is nothing we would not do or suffer if we could save him. In the same way, the sinner's great degeneration moves the compassion of his divine Father to their very depths. When the Lord passes by and sees him lying in his blood in the open field, Ezekiel 16.6, he says, That is my son. He bears the image of his maker. Since I have spoken against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Therefore, my bowels are troubled for him. I will surely have mercy upon him, saith the Lord. Jeremiah 31.20 Sinners should remember that the very fact that they are sinners is the thing that moves God's compassion and kindness. Do you say, I do not see how God can make it consistent with His holiness to pardon and love such a sinner as I am. I can tell you how. By giving His own Son to die in your place. 8. Christ died for us so that He could save us, not in our sins, but from our sins. Then, Must it not exceedingly grieve him that we would continue in sin? What do you think? Suppose you were to see Jesus face to face, and he were to show you those wounds in his hands and in his side, and were to say, I died for you because I saw that you were lost and beyond hope, and because I wanted to save you from your sins. And now will you repeat those sins again? Can you go on still longer in sinning against me? 9. You may suppose from our subject that Jesus must be willing to save you from wrath if you truly repent and accept him as your Savior. How can you doubt it? Since Jesus suffered unto death for this very purpose, it certainly only remains for you to meet the conditions, and you are saved from wrath through Him. 10. You may also suppose that God, having spared not His Son, will also with Him freely give you all other things else, enough grace to meet all your needs the kind care of His providence, the love of His heart, everything you can need. To continue in sin despite such grace and love must be heinous. It must grieve His heart exceedingly. 
A friend of mine who is in charge of 150 boys in a reform school is accustomed, when they misbehave, to put them for a time on bread and water. What do you think he does himself in some of these cases? He puts himself with them on bread and water. The boys in the school see this, and they learn the love of the superintendent and father. Then, when tempted to do wrong, they must say to themselves, If I do wrong, I will have to live on bread and water. But the worst of all is that my father will come and eat bread and water with me and for my sake. And how can I bear that? How can I bear to have my father who loves me so well confine himself to bread and water for my sake? In the same way, Jesus puts himself on pain and shame and death so that you might have joy and life, that you might be forgiven and saved from sinning. Will you then continue to sin more? Have you not the heart to appreciate his dying love? Can you go on and sin even more despite all the love shown to you on Calvary? You understand that Christ died to redeem you from sin. Suppose your own eyes were to see him face to face, and he would tell you all he has done for you. Sister, he says, I died to save you from that sin. Will you do it again? Can you go on and sin just the same as if I had never died for you? In that reform school of which I spoke, the effects produced on even the worst boys by the love shown them is really remarkable. The superintendent had long insisted that he did not want locks and bars to confine his boys. The directors had said, You must lock them in. If you don't, they will run away. On one occasion, the superintendent was to be gone for two weeks. A director came to him and urged him to lock up the boys before he left for he thought that while the superintendent was gone, the boys would certainly run away. The superintendent replied, I do not think they will. I have confidence in those boys. But, responded the director, give us some guarantee. Are you willing to pledge your city lot that if they do run away, the lot goes to the reform school fund? After a little reflection, he consented. I will give you my lot, all the little property I have in the world, if any of my boys run away while I am gone. Before he left, he called all the boys together and explained to them his pledge. He asked them to look at his dependent family, and then he appealed to their honor and their love for him. Would you be willing to see me stripped of all my property? I think I can trust you. He left and then returned a little unexpectedly, late one Saturday night. 
He had hardly entered the yard when the word rang through the sleeping halls. Our father has come. Almost in an instant, they were there greeting him and shouting, We are all here! We are all here! Cannot Christ's love have as much power as that? Will the love the Reform School boys bear to their official father hold them to their place during the long days and nights of his absence? And will not Christ's love to us restrain us from sinning? What do you say? Will you say, If Christ loves me so much, then it is clear that he won't send me to hell, and therefore I will continue to sin all I want. Do you say that? If so, then there is no hope for you. The gospel that should save you can do nothing for you but sink you deeper in moral and eternal ruin. You are fully resolved to twist it to your utter damnation. If those Reform School boys had said, Our Father loves us so much that He will eat bread and water with us, and therefore we know He will not punish us to hurt us, would they not certainly bring a curse on themselves? Would not their reformation be completely hopeless? It is the same with the sinner who can trivialize the Savior's dying love. Is it possible that when Jesus has died for you to save your soul from sin and from hell, you can continue to willingly sin again and again? Will you continue in sin even more because he has loved you so much? Think of this and make up your mind. If Christ has died to redeem me from sin, then I will put away all sinning from this moment on and forever. I forsake all my sins from this hour. I am able to live or to die with my Redeemer. Why not? With God's help, I will have no more to do with sinning forever.